So, chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 John. Beloved, let, let, each, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the lo- sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he he in us because he has given us has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he, has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. And now we've already um, heard our Bible reading from First John chapter 4. Um, and let me uh, encourage you, as I always do, if you're able to have that open in front of you over the next few minutes, I think you'll find that helpful. And I certainly will too. Um, so let me encourage you to have First John 4 open if you can. Uh, Before we think about that together, though, I'm just going to to pray for us and to ask for God's help. So let me lead us in prayer. John writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you have, as we've just been singing, sent your Son One who has given us understanding in order that we might know you. And understanding in order that we might respond rightly. We pray this morning that as we think on your word together, you would please grow our understanding of who you are. That you are love. And would come to love as you have loved us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, quite a number of you here will know that uh, we, that Fiona and I, recently had a, a little girl. A little Karis was born uh, just over 10 weeks ago. Lots of you have met her. Some of you might have met her this morning. Some of you, I think, have, have held her. She's been a little human rugby ball over the past uh, few weeks, been passed around various different people Sunday by Sunday, and very uh, happy to be one, I should say. Uh, and, and people, as they've met her, have said all sorts of things about her. One uh, particularly interesting comment was that she has very knowing eyes and is a very thoughtful little thing. 
uh, to which my answer was, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, she might have lots of thoughts going on, uh, going on in, in her little mind just now. There might be nothing going on there at all quite yet. She can't tell us either way. But one of the comments we've had with Karis more than any other is she's definitely a Gilmer, isn't she? She looks just like her mum and dad. And you're never quite sure how to take that kind of comment. Is that meant to be a good thing? Or, or are, you, are you mourning with those who mourn? Are you commiserating with her and with us? But it is often the case, isn't it, that you can tell even from a very, very early age who a baby's parents are. You can see that they bear some of the family traits. And this morning, John is going to say something very similar about people who are in God's family. Just look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, says John, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Here's the family trait of someone who has been born of God, says John, who is in his family. And the key marker in 1 John 4 is love. Now we are, as Jonathan mentioned, nearing the end of this series in First John. We only have another week or two left to go. And if you've been with us for any of our time in this letter, that idea might not be that new to you. Because through the whole letter of John, John has been effectively reading out the results of a spiritual DNA test. He's been persuading the Christians he was writing to that they are part of God's family. And he's been doing that to reassure them, to reassure them that they were doing the right thing by sticking with the Jesus of the Bible. They'd been under the cosh for doing that, and he wanted to encourage them to keep going. And so one of the main applications of this letter to us over the past few weeks has been, if you are sticking with Jesus, with the Jesus of the Bible, then you're doing the right thing. Don't move. Stay where you are. And there is a sense in which that will be part of our application today, too. But it would be a mistake, I think, to, to understand First John to be purely passive. That John doesn't mean there's anything for us to do as a result of reading this letter. Because this morning, as well as sort of getting the family photo album out and showing us that we bear the family likeness, John is also going to call us to show that likeness more and more. To be like our Father, the God of love, as we love one another. And so we're going to think about that under our first heading this morning. Love one another because love is essential to who God is and is what God has done. Now, one way to, to capture a sense of public opinion on a particular issue is to carry out a vox pop. Do you know what a vox pop is? It's when you take a microphone out and generally you film a member of the public being intercepted during their daily life out in the shops or out walking along Union Street and you ask them for their views on a particular subject and it usually pops up in that final item in the news at six o'clock. And I want you to imagine for a moment taking a mic out onto Union Street this morning and asking the people of Aberdeen this question. What do you imagine... That God is like. What do you imagine that God is like? What kinds of responses do you think you would get to that kind of question? I'm guessing you'd probably get quite a wide range of answers. 
Some might say that, that, that they imagine God to be sort of powerful and in control, that he's bigger than the world and that he's a kind of a powerful force over the world. He is, he is in control. Others might think of God as being creative. He's the one who made everything in the world after all. Quite a number of people, of course, might reply by saying that he's nowhere. I suspect that there's no such being as God in their mind. But I do wonder if First John chapter 4 verse 8 would chime quite closely with what a lot of people would say. How do you imagine God? First John 4 verse 8, God is love. That's the kind of idea a lot of people have when they think of God. It's the kind of God that a lot of people can get on board with. Because in our culture, we love love, don't we? We love the idea that the being or the force that's controlling the universe is a loving one. Love is all you need, after all. And John is clear that that is what God is like. That before we think of love as being a feeling, or even before we think of love as being a doing word, we ought to think of love as a being word. John says that God is love. It is of the essence of who he is and has always been. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect loving relationship. And that might well be a reassuring thing for some of us to hear that, that, that God, the God of the Bible, is love. But we do well to ask, what do we actually mean when we say that? Because people use the word love to mean all sorts of different things, don't they? We love our families, or our spouses, or our friends. And yet at the same time, we might say we love music. We love football. I love Mexican food. Love means lots of different things, doesn't it? And even the idea that God is love could mean a lot of different things too, couldn't it? I suspect that for a lot of people, it means that he's he's sort of a great big grandfather figure who's got a sort of rose-tinted view of, of what we're like. And as long as you're happy, then he's happy. But you see, that can't be quite what John has in mind when he says that God is love. See, if you were here over the past few weeks, you might remember that this isn't the first time John has made this sort of categorical statement, this kind of God is statement. Here in 1 John 4, he says that God is love. But way back in 1 John 1... John said that God is light. And that was to say he is pure. And he is good. And he is right. That is essential to who God is too. And we said when we thought about 1 John 1, didn't we, that whilst that was good news, it meant that he can be absolutely trusted to always do the right thing. Well, it also means that he doesn't look at the world through rose-tinted glasses. But that he sees things just as they are. He sees us just as we are. That his perfect light shows up all the darkness, all the sin, the rebellion against him that lies within each one of us. And so we might as well ask the question, how can those two things be true of the same person? How can God both be light, be perfectly good and just and right in all he does, in all he is, And at the same time, love us, we who are not light and not good and are not just in all we do. Well, the explanation comes in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there is a word in there you might not have heard before, the word propitiation. Propitiation is what you do to appease someone who is angry. It's making an offering that will bear that anger away. And the point John is making is that if you want to know what love looks like, what the love of God looks like, what the God of love looks like, don't think of an elderly grandfather with rose-tinted specks. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we see what love looks like. Where the anger of the God of light, of perfect purity, at all human darkness, was shown for what it was, and was dealt with, was borne away. Now that might not be what people have in mind as they tell you imagine, that they imagine God to be a loving being. They might prefer to think of him as that kindly grandfather figure, in fact, who, who affirms everything we do, because as long as we are happy, then he's happy. But actually, only this kind of love, the love that sees you as you really are, and yet still loves, can ever satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And to illustrate that, let me invite you just for a moment or two to think about the use of social media in our culture. Uh, social media has revolutionized how people interact with other people now, hasn't it? Before a lot of us have even left our beds in the morning, we've checked some kind of media up feed, and there are lots and lots of positives about social media. One of the complexities, though, is that it allows us to, to, to sort of carefully curate the version of us we want people to see. The version of us we think people will like. Now, it's not that we don't do that in real life too, of course. We, we definitely, definitely do. But it's sort of amped up by social media. You can literally choose the picture you want people to see of you on social media. Uh, we have a, a friend um, who recently said as much, actually. Someone was poking fun at her for, for putting quite so many photos up on Facebook, for, for just dumping a, heap, a whole heap of photographs on Facebook. And in response, she said, I'm actually really selective. I only put the good stuff up, the stuff I want people to see. Now, I'm not having a go at her at all, nor am I having a go at social media. But it is a helpful illustration of how often how willing we are to project a version of ourselves in order to be loved. Because the reality is that people seeing and knowing the real you, well, that's pretty frightening, isn't it? They would never love me if they knew the real me, if they saw all the photographs, if they knew what I struggle with or, or how long I've struggled with it for. They wouldn't love me if, if, if they knew the thoughts that I think in my quiet moments. If they could watch video footage of the people I've hurt or, or the mistakes that I've made. They wouldn't love me if they know the anger that boils within me, the insecurities that threaten to overwhelm me. They would just never love me, not the real me. And you see, that's where the love of God, being both light and love, is absolutely world-shattering. It is life-changing news. It's the news that at the cross, nothing was swept under the carpet. The cross was not rose-tinted glasses being put over how you've behaved. 
The cross is a public declaration, as public as it gets, on top of a hill, that you're broken. It is God shining the light of his perfect purity on your failure, every one of them. On your sin and calling it for what it is. Bringing it, kicking and screaming out of the shadows. And never mind the stuff you wouldn't post on social media. The stuff you're ashamed of within the inner recesses of your heart. And it isn't downplayed, it isn't pretended like it doesn't matter, like a kindly grandfather. God feels and sees the grief and pain of it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. And still he says, I love you. Not I love the you you project on social media. Or the you you pretend to be in front of your mates. Or I love the the, the whitewashed version of you that a grandparent might want to see. The God of perfect light saying, I love you. And that is the deepest longing of the human heart. What people want more than anything is to be completely known as we are. Not as we wish we were, but as we really are, warts and all. And not to be affirmed in those warts. To be affirmed in behavior that we know is wrong. But nonetheless, to be completely loved, for that behavior to be dealt with, that's what the cross of Jesus is. That's what the God of love is like. And so let me ask you, why would you settle for a half-baked, sentimental kind of love when you can have that? Why would you want the God as kindly grandfather or the God as Facebook friend When you can have the God who knows you and loves you, if only you trust in him. Love is who God is. And love is what he has done at the cross of Jesus for anyone who will trust in that cross for themselves. That's our first point this morning. Now, it may not come as a surprise that 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 kind of love ought to evoke a response. And so what we might be expecting at this stage is for John to call us to love God in return. Look how he has loved you. You ought to love him back. That's the mark of someone who's in God's family. That's uh, what shows we're part of his worldwide family. But I wonder if you spotted that that isn't the trajectory of things in 1 John 4. Things start vertically. Okay, God has loved us, says John. But the surprise in 1 John 4 is that then they go horizontal. Do you see that? Beloved, if God so loved us vertically, we also ought to love one another horizontally. Direction of travel from God to us and us to others. Can you see that? And that's what we're going to think about a little bit more under our next heading. Love one another because the, love, the God of love's spirit lives within you. Now, one of the, the most famous and decorated boxers of all time is a man called George Foreman. Some of you, you might have heard of him. He was a, a two-time heavyweight champion in the 1970s and 80s. If you haven't heard of him, well, you might have heard of the, the, the range of fat-reducing grills that went on sale um, with his name and face on them um, shortly thereafter. Uh, one of Foreman's sons is also called George. Uh, and as a child, George Jr. used to love to watch his dad train. But he really didn't think that he himself was cut out for boxing. 
And he was told as much by his mum, apparently, who thought he was far too calm and measured to be a boxer like his dad. He was better suited, said his mum, to a silk pyjama lifestyle, which sounds a bit harsh to me, but that's, I guess, a mother's love. The problem, though, was that like his dad, George Jr. was six feet five, he was 17 stone, and he carried himself, well, well, not like someone who wears silk pajamas, he carried himself like a fighter. And such were the echoes of his father in him, that when he eventually strapped on some gloves himself, he ended up being pretty handy. And uh, despite having lived a fairly sheltered, a, a fairly silk uh, existence up until that point, he said, George Jr., that he knew he could make it as a boxer. Because his dad had made it, and because he could see the echoes, the shadows of his dad in himself. And John says that things are similar when it comes to God's family. God is love, we have read. God has loved us in the most extraordinary way. We've seen that at the cross. And so what would have us do? God would have us love one another. Chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, in in case that word perfected, it appears a couple of times in 1 John 4, in case it catches in your throat a little bit. The idea is not that God's love isn't already perfect. It's that God's love reaches its completion, reaches its goal in us as we love other people. And yet, that might sound like quite a tall order to love other people. Like God has loved us. Because we've already seen, haven't we, that his love is an extraordinary kind of love, isn't it? There's just no way I can muster that up by myself. But what's interesting is that John doesn't ask you to. Not by yourself. His argument is not principally that God has loved us, so you jolly well better dig deep and muster up love for other people. Just look at what he says again. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. John's saying that the God of love lives within his people by his Holy Spirit. So can you see, just as George Foreman Jr. was able to box and knew he was able to box because he could see the echoes, the shadows of his own father in him, well, if you're a Christian, this call to love might seem hard, but you know you can love. Why? Because you've got more than just echoes of your father in you. You have his spirit in you. Now that should be a reassuring thing, I think. We aren't called to do this by ourselves, to muster up love from within us. But it is nonetheless a challenging thing. It does involve us engaging our wills to love other people. And I wonder if you can see quite how wide-ranging the implications all that has for, for how we approach our Christian lives. Because there are, there are lots of, of features of our Christian lives, if you're a Christian, that, that, that you hopefully know are very important. Uh, that praying is important, and, and reading your Bible, and, and singing to the Lord, and, and, and listening to Bible teaching, they're all really important parts of our walk as Christians. But, you see, the thing is, 
it is now possible to do quite a few of them on your own. Or at least in a room by yourself, from behind a computer screen or or an iPad or with a phone in front of you. And actually, the return to church post-COVID, I guess, has sort of accelerated that for a lot of people. A lot of people took the chance to to step back, to disengage from church over that time, and to tune in online instead. Not because they had to shield, necessarily, or they couldn't make it out of the house, but because it's easier in some instances. But you see, whilst we do make a big deal of listening to God and speaking to God... And whilst you can do some of that without other people even being in the room, well, much of what God has called us to as his people, it isn't just vertical, it's horizontal. It's to love one another. And you can't do that in a room on your own. Now, again, we have to make sure we're listening to John on his terms here when we read the word love. The the kind of love he's meaning isn't a romanticized or a sentimental kind of thing. Verse 10, the definition he gives us is not that we've loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does love look like? It looks like God the Father sending his son for us. It's a costly, costly thing. And loving one another as a church family will often feel like a costly thing. The cost involved might be the cost of forgiving someone. Another Christian whom you feel has wronged you, perhaps even a very long time ago. Perhaps what God would have you do is ask for his help to forgive them. And to love them, difficult though that might be. I was thinking on it this week though, and I wonder if for some of us the cost involved isn't isn't necessarily personal or emotional in, in, in quite that sense. It's a lot more practical than that. It's time. Time's something that a lot of us are very short of, isn't it? It's something that a lot of us budget. (laughs) The time it takes to call someone during the week and ask how they're doing. The time it takes to make a meal and drop it into someone who's struggling. The time it takes to stick around after a church service on a Sunday and chat to people and encourage them. Or perhaps to use an evening to gather with God's people in a home group or an evening service. Very practically, one of my observations is that is one of the areas in which COVID has taken a toll on a lot of church families. And I'm sure there are lots of good reasons for that and and they're different for each person. But I wonder if part of the reason is that it feels quite costly to make that kind of decision, to give up another evening, perhaps a Sunday evening. That's your downtime over the weekend. I do wonder whether that might just be one way in in which we give ourselves another opportunity to love and serve one another as a church family. As we come together during the week in a home group or on a Sunday night and, and listen to them together and encourage one another. Now that doesn't look especially dramatic, does it? But it might well be costly. God himself calls us to love. And even though it is costly, God himself lives within you. And that means that we do have it in us to love other people in that kind of costly way if we've trusted in Jesus. The God of love's spirit lives within you. So love other people. Now, um, I've already mentioned a couple of times so far this morning that the main sort of outbox of this whole letter has been assurance. 
That's John's aim with the whole of First John, that it's not quite so much an exam script that we are to, t- we are to pass to, in order to evidence that we are in God's family. But as I say, it was more of a DNA test result being read out to assure us you are in God's family if you're sticking with Jesus. And a note of assurance is baked into this whole idea of loving one another in chapter 4 as well. And we'll think about that under our final heading this morning. Love one another, because as you do, you go in confidence about the day of judgment. Now again, in the last few verses of of chapter 4, we run into another fairly well-known and and, and quite well-loved, I think, verse, uh, verse 18. There is no fear in love, says John, but perfect love casts out fear as i say it's it's quite a well-known and and, and well-loved verse and it's quite popular for weddings you might have had it read as part of your own wedding and you might understand why it's quite popular in that sort of context it's a lovely idea that that if you're loved by your spouse and you love them in return that you won't fear anything together you might face in life but whilst it can have have a rich application to marriage That isn't quite the situation he's talking about. He isn't talking about fear in a general sense. Notice, he's talking about fear of eternal judgment. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. He's talking about fear of facing the God of perfect light and being shown to be full of darkness, the fear of the punishment that will come as a result of that. And that makes sense in the wider context of First John. Remember, the people John was writing to were, were uneasy, unsettled about whether they'd got things right or not by sticking with Jesus. They might well have been fearful that they'd, well, they'd back the wrong horse. And I wonder if that might well characterize your experience of, of, of religion or your own mindset as you think on the future that might await you if you were to meet a God of perfect light. John wants to reassure these Christians that they needn't fear. And he gives them two reasons. We've already seen the first of those. They needn't fear the day of judgment because they have been loved by God. They know they have because of the cross. That punishment for their darkness that they might otherwise have been terrified about facing has been dealt with, has been borne away if they've trusted in Jesus. That's the first reason they needn't fear. They have been loved. But the second reason John says that they they needn't fear, they can take reassurance, isn't just that they have been loved, it's that they love. Verse 16. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is his love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment can you see the connection there the fact that we love other people that we grow in loving other people verse 16 ought to bring a sense of confidence verse 17 for that day to come or in other words you needn't fear eternity because you know god has loved you and you can take assurance of that as you see his love at work in you enabling you to love other people And again, in many ways, that's something from which this church family can take a great deal of encouragement. I can think of multiple examples over literally the past three days of people loving one another in this church family in an extraordinarily self-sacrificial way. 
John would say, that's reason for assurance. Take heart. But I am mindful that some of us, well, whilst the intention might be to reassure, might feel well unsettled by that. Because we don't love as we ought, do we? And so even though these verses are meant to reassure, we might find ourselves feeling anything but. Well, it is just worth being clear. John isn't saying that to show yourself to be a Christian, you need to evidence perfect love. In fact, John only really has two settings when it comes to love in 1 John 4. Either you love, or verse 20, notice what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Two settings, love and hate. So here's where the rubber hits the road with 1 John 4. If you've trusted in Jesus, you need not fear that day to come when you will meet the God of perfect light. Because God loves you. Not because you're inherently lovely. Not because he only knows the Facebook version of you. He knows you fully and he loves you. And if you doubt that, then look at the cross. And if you are a Christian, still feeling wobbly, well then ask him for his help to love like he loves. That's another ground for reassurance in First John 4 because he lives in you by his Holy Spirit. He can help you to grow in this way. To love your brothers and sisters in self-sacrificial ways. And so to reassure your heart in the face of your fears. Now if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I hope you can see from what we've been thinking about together this morning. That at the very least, being a Christian isn't, well it isn't about white-knuckled religious duty. If you don't have love, well spiritual activity is for nothing. But I also hope you can see that that doesn't make being a Christian any easier or make obedience any easier in that sense. It actually ramps things up. Because if you reflect honestly on your own life, whether you're a Christian or not, well, I guess all of us would have to admit that First John 4 is not a, per- a-, a-, a portrait of what we always look like. We don't always love like this. And so if this is God's standard, then I'm in trouble. I need help. Well, the good news this morning that in the most loving act of all of human history, we got help. His name is Jesus. And he promises that he can be your rescuer too, if you'll trust in him. Let me pray to him now as we close our time together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are love. And we praise you that you have loved us. Not because of anything inherently lovely in us, but because you are love. And we praise you too that you commit to helping your people to grow in our love for one another. We praise you for the evidences of that that we can see around us in this church family and pray that that would please be the case here more and more. We would grow in our self-sacrificial love for one another. And for those of us here who don't yet know you, we do ask that this morning you would enable them to take hold of the love you have shown them. To trust in the cross of Jesus for themselves. And so to be welcomed into your family. 
We ask all of these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.